this is Lauren, host of the Adulting is Easy podcast, where we make adulting easier by making money easier. I have another Twitter space recording for you this week. It was recorded on June 29th, 2022. We talked about analyzing real estate deals. This is a really good one if you're confused at all by financials, numbers. Clint, Tom, Stephen, and I did a pretty good thorough breakdown of things. Really, really hope you enjoy it. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Wealth Wednesday. We took last week off and we forgot how to do this. Nice to see you all. Um, this is being recorded. It's about 9 Eastern. It's when we normally start. It's being recorded. It'll be on the Adulting is Easy podcast feed in a couple of days if you need to jump off early. And tonight we are discussing analyzing real estate deals. Like, how should we start? Tom, do you want to like kick us off since you have like the most like real estate prowess of all of us? I mean, I guess I'm going to. So I'm going to post a deal that I tweeted about and just kind of run through numbers and run through my tweet. Uh, My name is Tom Brickman. I am the frugal gay. I currently have 19 doors, seven in Dallas and um, 12 in Toledo, Ohio. I do have one additional property under contract. I have a stack of properties I am going to look at on Friday. I have um, left my nine to five to do real estate full time. And I also have an eBay flipping business. And yeah, that's a little bit about me. So I'm going to pull this tweet and put it up in the nest. I will be back in one second. I got to find the tweet. Thanks, Tom. And as everyone's listening, we are pretty much going to keep it loosey-goosey. Tom's going to walk through this deal. I can talk about how I analyze long-term rentals or short-term rentals, whatever direction we want to go. If you guys have questions, definitely raise your hand, request the speaker, or you can DM any of us, um, especially me. I've got it up. I'm Lauren at Adulting is Easy. So we'll go through that. And if you have any deals maybe you want to talk through or examples you want to share, that would be really cool too. I think everybody would kind of get a lot out of it. So let's make it as much of a conversation as we can. And then Lauren, let's let's use this as one of the ones where like we've done in the past, as we work through those deals, as you work through your process, I work through mine. Let's each look to give the listeners at least three, maybe four to five tactical actions they can look at when they're doing a deal or analytics they want to think about. So that people are leaving tonight with a with a bit of a roadmap of, hey, here's some things I should think about. Here's some numbers I should know, uh, some KPIs, however we want to phrase it, metrics. And then we can open up to questions, but really give some people some tactical, strategic things to look at. Steve, uh, you, similar for you on the flips that you've done with your family. Uh, so everyone can leave with some tactical, actionable advice. Completely agree. Um, This is an older deal that I just pinned up here. This is something I tweeted about in March. Interest rates were a lot lower. Um, Houses were more aggressively selling at the time. But I just kind of want to walk through. I do this in my, my coaching, and we sit and look at a ton of deals. And this was a house that was on my watch list that when I ran numbers, it made sense all around. Um, my two main markets that I focus on are, are Dallas, Texas, and Toledo, Ohio. This is a Toledo, Ohio property. This was a four-bedroom, um, two-bath house uh, listed for 137 or 138 technically so it 
the way I, I run my numbers is always a 20% minimum down payment, um, which is usually required by most lenders, especially if it's going to be an investment property. I ran this one based off of me living in it and then me renting out two of the bedrooms. So at 138000 with 20% down, which is about 28000 the way my numbers worked out were my monthly property tax was $231. My monthly all-in payment, I'm, I'm looking at my numbers right now. Um, my property tax was 231 My homeowner's insurance was about $50 a month. And my house payment worked out to just under $600 a month on a 30-year note. I'm stumbling through this one because it's an older deal. But the way I want to, and, and the way I'd look at this now, if, if this came across and this were a deal that I were interested in again, is at $138,000 for a door with four bedrooms, I could rent both bedrooms out at $600 each. That brings me $1,200 a month. And with my property tax, with my insurance, with my payment, I was profiting about $300 a month by renting the two bedrooms. So I'm $900 all in. I'm living in there and I am up $300, which will basically cover my utilities between water, gas, and electric. So I'm living rent-free. And that's really why I posted about this one. And this is how I started building wealth through real estate. I um, purchased a very similar property. I purchased a duplex at $90,000. I put $9,000 down on it. So my mortgage was 81000 on it. I lived upstairs in the ugly small unit. I rented out the downstairs unit for $600. My mortgage, my tax, my insurance was $738. So I was able to live in the upstairs unit for $138 a month. And at the time when I purchased that at 21, I didn't know anywhere I could live at $138. $38 a month. So that's kind of how I really was able to scale on a much lower salary than the other panelists up here because I had a very average salary uh, as I started my career. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask was, I mean, sometimes that that purchase price or that down payment can seem really low now, but this is like 20 something years ago, you were 21. It's not like you were raking in the freaking money at that point, right? Right, and that's why I posted this one. So this is a this is with a twenty thousand dollar down payment. There's lots of different options. If I didn't have that large down payment, I'm going to go with a five percent conventional loan, which some banks will do, especially if you're going to live in it. I get asked this question almost every day when I do coachings. But if the asset is right and it's a good solid property, even with the higher interest rate. If we re-ran the numbers on this deal, this deal still makes sense at a 6.75% interest rate as opposed to a 4% interest rate, which is what it was when I, I tweeted about this in March. That's key, Tom. I'm glad you said that about the interest rate because I think that's probably questions a lot of us are getting right now is what are we doing about interest rates? And really, it just comes down to 
it, your payments higher, right? You're still going to run your numbers the same way. You're still going to have your goals of cash flow or appreciation or whatever your metrics are, your KPIs are, like Clint mentioned. You're still going to have those goals. You're just going to run in, run it with those current interest rates. You know, you can't be just lamenting that happening and not analyzing deals anymore. And Tom, you did also say that, you know, it was more competitive back when you shared this. What are you seeing in the market now as you're looking at things in terms of supply and price drops and things like that? So the property I actually have under contract is very similar to this house. It's a little bit better kept than this house and I have it under contract at 88,000. So all those numbers and I'm I'm purchasing it in cash and I will probably do either a portfolio loan on the back end or or possibly a rental loan down the road, but right now I sold off a Dallas property. So I was able to get a very similar house to this, similar in size, similar in age similar and condi- a, a little bit better condition in my opinion under contract for almost $50,000 less than what this was listed for in March. So I am happy that I was patient and as things are trickling down and I'm seeing the price reductions now in Dallas, I I think that you know waiting it out and I'm I'm anxious to see where we're going to end up in October, November and December because that's usually the months that they're slowing. And normally I wouldn't be putting something under contract, but this is a a street and a property that I've been stocking for years. So when I saw that and I went up and I saw how well it's been kept, the owner's really taken care of it over the past 31 years that they've owned it. I knew that the right thing to do was get it under contract and get control of the asset. So 31 years, what would those owners have paid for this, Tom? I think that they bought it in 1991 and they bought it for 46,000 and I'm under contract at 88. So this is a much slower appreciation market in Ohio. You don't see the double and triple digit gains like Dallas sees. Okay, cool. Um let's see. We have Texas Texas Tech Championship. Man, you guys play good defense. What's up? <laughs> I was wondering if you uh, use equity out of your existing properties to buy scale more properties. I have like five in Dallas, but I'm kind of stuck on down payment. I definitely have, um, not my primary residence, but I, uh, especially being in Texas, there's a ton of products available to you, like um, guidance lines of credit, which once you have a certain amount of properties, especially if you have anything that's paid off and you've established a business with a credit union. And that's really how I've scaled in Texas. I've gone to them and I'm like, hey, I have these five properties and I have this amount of equity. Is there anything that you can do for me? And they've come back with either guidance line of credit or they've done a refinance and we've put everything into a portfolio type loan. And then that's how I've, I've scaled as well. So, and, and my key with that is going to the smaller banks because if I know if I went to a larger lender, um, they're going to see my seven doors and it's not going to make them want to do business with me. So establishing in both markets, I, I have good established relationships with credit unions and they both know that I pay my bills and I take care of my properties. And whenever I bring them a deal, they're both eager to underwrite something on it for me. Oh, that's helpful. I might have to send you a DM because I have a lot of equity in my properties, but just get, getting up that next down payment is going to take me a while. Definitely. And yeah, I can even, if, if you're in the Dallas market, I'll, I'll 
DMU, uh, the, the credit union that I've had the most success with, because there's two actually here that are both pretty generous, because you could also try and do, you know, if you're going to get stuck on that down payment, you might be able to do some sort of, I know that certain credit unions will write HELOCs on rental properties. That's cool, Tom. I, I kind of, I, I was under the impression you can't get a HELOC on a rental property. So that's awesome and good to know. And really good advice there on having that relationship with the credit union. Clint, do you want to talk to taking equity out? You're like the king of that. Lauren, I signed uh, some documents to pull out about $400,000 in HELOC today. So yes, I want to talk about pulling equity out. Uh, not We're not actually doing it. It's just available. So the next question is, what are we going to do with it? The more fun question is, where did it come from? And I'll uh, talk about that when it's my turn. But those are rental properties. So you can do it on rental properties. Well, it may be different, obviously, by geography, bank, etc. But you, I think you ought to be able to do it if I can. And the question, Texas, I think a lot of us up here, that's exactly how we have grown our portfolios, is equity from past deals going into uh, new deals, whether it's through HELOCs, whether it's through finances, et cetera. And so I'll share some of how I look at it and do that when it's my turn. Lauren, is that sufficient? And I'll pass it back to you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's perfect. And I was just going to add that on my primary, I have a house hack primary. So I have two accessory dwelling units in the backyard and I am renting those out on Airbnb, at, you know, VRBO, my own website, things like that. And when we renovated everything, um, my husband and I did a cash out refi on it. So we did kind of like a burr house hack for short-term rentals. And we took that cash out and then bought a new primary house hack that is a duplex. So that's some. That's kind of like my best use, I think, of of cash. So I have three mortgages. I have twelve units. I have three mortgages, and they were all secured in twenty twenty one through um, a refinance and two purchases. Let's see, Stephen. Anything to add there? Or should we move on? I would be curious with Tom on how you calculate break even, and are you looking for just massive like a, you double gross profit or how do you calculate a break even and say like i'm good until interest rate hits 7.5 or something like how do you calculate that out if you look at my tweet i break it down in there and i mean my first interest rate was 6.875 in 2004 so i'm good at anything up to that and i know that we're inching towards that right now but um my numbers are based off of what I'm going to profit per month once I've taken out my tax, my insurance, my property management. And I run all of these on long-term rental numbers, but I am converting some over into short-term rentals right now. But if it profits less than $200 a month, it, it's not a deal for me. And I just was was doing one with a client today and we were at like $211 and I just, I just told, he was like, I'm ready to write on this. And I'm like, it's just too tight that it makes me uncomfortable. Cause a lot of mine what are at that $200. That was in the Toledo market. I agree with that. Cause certain markets are appreciation markets. Some are cash flow markets. 
Right, and you're not going to get the appreciation in Toledo. So uh, at $211 or whatever it was, it it didn't make sense, and I wouldn't touch it because I have several in Toledo that are cash-flowing 500 plus. Um, and I mean, I have a $400,000 house in Dallas and I have a $26,000 house in Toledo and I make more on the $26,000 house in Toledo every month than I do on the $400,000 house. And I really need to spell that out when, because people don't, you know, it's hard to comprehend that I'm making more money from a a $26,000 house than a $400,000 house, but I have the appreciation in in tech first. Differences is your house in Dallas could be worth six hundred fifty thousand in a few years. Right. Yeah. And Tom, do you use predominantly fixed rate debt? Do you use variable rate debt? Primarily fixed rate, but I have been open to looking at arms lately, um, just because of how rates are going and where arms are at right now. And for your fixed rate debt how long of a period do you usually have for a term? Usually, usually looking at five years and amortized over 15 or 20 is the majority of my debt. And and so Steve, that's something I really want, you know, I really want to emphasize with our listeners, right? I I heard a podcast the other day and I, I think a lot of people as it relates to their homes are very afraid of interest rates, right? They're very afraid of what they see happening. But if you, if you look at what some of Tom has done, let's say he's fixed rate debt on something he acquired in the last two years, he's locked in at historically low interest rates and he's locked in for a period of five years, right? So we're saying, Oh, like, what are you going to do with rates rising to 7%? Well, well, Tom's rates aren't rising to 7%. Tom's not having to adjust his mortgage for five years, right? He, he doesn't have to pay that higher interest until, let's say, three years from now, four years from now. And everything we're seeing in the economy and everything we've seen in past rising rate environments the, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, the U.S. has never had what we call a soft landing. So any time interest rates have risen, it's led to a recession. And almost always the answer to a recession is lowering of interest rates, right? So you just look at the equation and everybody worries about what are my interest rates going to do to me? But what they're missing is the interest rates aren't actually going to have an impact on you because your mortgage isn't maturing or sorry, I shouldn't say isn't going to have an impact, may not have an impact because rising interest rates only affect you if you're in a variable interest loan or if you're coming up for loan renewal. The other thing to think about is I think people think if their interest rate doubles, their mortgage payment doubles, but that also is inaccurate, right? So doing the actual math, getting the Excel spreadsheet open to say what does an interest rate that's twice as much mean to my mortgage payment, I think people will be less afraid of the impact on their cash flow than just mentally thinking, oh my gosh, it's going to cost me twice as much. So I definitely encourage people to run the numbers, run the math, and also consider when does my mortgage actually mature and where might the economy be at that point in time? 
Yeah, and the the Fed and central banks typically will overshoot. They'll go up too high on interest rates and they'll go down too low on interest rates. And so there's a really good chance that on this current trend of tightening, they'll overshoot. And then by the time you come time to renew your mortgage in, say, three to five years, that it'll they'll have to start lowering them by then, especially if there's another reason to, if it's another pandemic or another, who knows, reason to, to lower interest rates. Tom, your interest rate of five years fixed and amortized over 25 or 30 years, that sounds really familiar to Canadian mortgages, and that's the first time I've heard of that. I thought in the U.S. they were typically 15 fixed or 30 fixed. Can you so explain you- that a little further? These are commercial loans at this point because I have a lot of my properties are paid off. So I've done more portfolio loans or guidance lines of credit. Um, So both of the ones that I have that are like that are commercial loans that are on a couple different properties and they're five year terms. And um, I know one of them is amortized over 15 years and one of them's amortized over 20 years. Um, they give options to expand it out to 25 or 30, but my comfort level is at the, the 15 and 20 year range um, from what I'm bringing in on those different properties. So I don't know that that's readily available to a regular in, uh, starting out home buyer, but um, once you're into the commercial loans, that's the products that I've been offered. Sounds good. I have a so I saw somebody comment on a tweet that you had today, and it was essentially to the line of housing in Toledo, Ohio is so cheap. You're buying these places for 40, 50, 60 grand, renting them out at a thousand bucks a month, 800 bucks a month. Why aren't they buying the place themselves? And I'm really interested in your answer on that because it's like, yeah, you save up for a year or two, you can buy the place yourself. I think that's part of why I'm on Twitter, because there's a lack of financial literacy. I looked at a property last Friday, and it's a $31,000 two-bedroom brick house, and the tenant has been in there 16 years, paying $600 a year for 16 years. And when I was viewing it, and I'm with the realtor, I'm like, you should have bought this property three times by now, and... They just, you know, that's what I've done a lot of in Toledo and I've done it in Dallas where I've bought properties and I've done rent to owns with people because part of it is that fear of owning and having to fix things. And that's what she said. She's like, well, right now the the basement wall is is caving in on that side. And I'm like, yes, but that's a, a $9,000 foundation fix. I've done it in two other properties, you know that should not hold you back from, from being a homeowner. And, and she just, the tenant just said, you know, uh, the owner has no interest in doing owner finance. So that's part of why I'm here. And that's part of what I do. And that's part of, you know, I think that there should be more homeowners and you are a hundred percent correct, but there's a lot of people that number one, don't want to do owner finance. Um, I've done it five times now, twice in Dallas, three times in, in Ohio, I've had one end in foreclosure and I've had four that have worked out flawlessly where I'll owner finance them. And after two years or three years, they'll go get a traditional loan on the property. And, and 
I usually like them to rent for a year first so I know that they're reliable, they take their bills seriously, because I don't like to open that up right off the bat and offer it, but some people do not have that patience. So I collect rent from 19 doors, but I actually collect a mortgage from another door currently. Um, I'm, this month I collected rent from 17 doors and a mortgage, so I collected payments from 18 people in June. Okay, hold on. This is the this is the first time I feel like every time we meet, I learn something completely new about you. I didn't know you did rent to own deals. And what is owner financing? Yes, yeah, so I think I tell the story a lot about the crack house, which I purchased in twenty seventeen on eBay. And I've spent a lot of money fixing it up. And then last year in July of twenty twenty one um, after the tenant had been in it for two years, it was the nicest one on the street. I drove by it while I was there. We just, we gave him an option. Um, he pays his rent. He pays it late almost every single month, but he pays it and he took really good care of the house. And we're like, here's the price. It was a little bit over what we had invested. Cause we saw what they were selling for in there. We sold it to him for 54,000. Um, and he pays us six thirty eight a month. Um, and his, he pays his own tax and his own insurance now. Um, so he's a, he was paying six ninety five in rent for it. So he's right at about that. But now that's taken, you know, when I went in there, um, when I went up in May, he's added a bathroom into the basement. He's put up some walls. So he, he's taken a lot of pride in ownership. And if I wouldn't have offered that, his, his credit is messed up. He would not be a homeowner. So I like giving those opportunities and turning tenants into owners. And I've, I've done that a couple of times. And like I said, I've had 80% success ratio out of my um, five times of, of doing that. That's awesome. I love how through your journey and the various endeavors that you've had, there's always a high element of creativity, finding an element that you can excel at a niche, a way to carve out some value that only you can provide and uh, your customers, be that on your eBay shop or through your tenants, I've always appreciated that. And uh, I think it's a really good takeaway for all of us. And on that th that theme, uh, Clint, what are some ways in which you're creative with real estate? I think the main way that I've been creative in real estate is, I think, Texas, you were talking about the fact that certain geographies cash flow, others are capital appreciation. And I've lived in capital appreciation the whole time, Steve, but I, I've still managed to build a, a pretty large portfolio. And it's interesting, right? Because it's, it's only eight or nine doors, but it's the, it's, roughly now because we have one under contract right um 11 to 12 million in in asset value and so it's it's a totally different gameplay than people who are buying cash flowing assets and so you look at it and say well how are you how are you able to do that and i think that's where i've had to be creative and whether it's buying properties on uh zero interest credit cards back in the day or it moving all the HELOCs around and, and juggling the lines of credit to afford those next homes and then saying, okay, when are you, 
where my creativity tends to come in is like, I know, I know we always, you know, don't time the market time in the market, but I've tended to be pretty slow on acquisitions. And then when I feel like the market's in a, in a dark spot, I go deep. Right. So uh, 2019 things were not in great shape in this city. You, You probably recall that. And I put four townhouses under contract. Uh, so we were very blessed because then COVID came and those all went up in, in value 60%, you know, 50, 60%. So we talked about earlier putting the HELOC in place on those two townhouses for about 400,000 today. I mean, those places, we closed them for about 1.1 million. So we needed about 250,000 in cash. And so the HELOC in place is somewhere in the neighborhood of 400. And so when you look at that, Steve, we're in them for cash of 250. But if we wanted to pull out our full HELOC, we'd be negative 150,000 in equity. And we closed on those at the start of June. Okay. Right? So, so how, how do you, how do you, okay. You're on here each yeah. week with the, the four of us. Yeah. You hear, over and over how Tom is buying homes for 50, 60, let's just call it a hundred K. Yeah. But you're buying homes that are a million. How, how do you reconcile how do I do it? the difference? No, no. Well, sure. But well, reconcile, no, no, I know. I know. Like I know. One thousand. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's also why I told Tom, I want to, I, I want to check my vacation, get my affairs in order, and I want to book a flight to Ohio and come in and, you know, buy a couple buildings, you know, a couple 10-unit apartment buildings because I can go there, you know, based on what, Tom, you're telling me, instead of buying one townhouse where I live, I could buy like a 10-unit or more apartment building. Like how much would an apartment go for, Tom? I have one on my watch list. It's a fourplex, so it's not an apartment building, but it's a fourplex, and it's two hundred and four thousand, and they rent for eight fifty a unit. So at two hundred thousand on a four unit, it it just it's a brick, nineteen seventies built fourplex, and it's on my watch list because it's it makes sense. If we're going to the larger units, I mean, you you can get something awesome in the. 10 to 16 unit range for, you know, 500,000, something in in that range. But um, that's what's currently on my watch list. So now if you're interested, everyone go to Toledo and start watching it because I think it's a great deal. It just came up yesterday. Tom, you're going to move the market in Toledo. You can't even buy a fourplex here. I'm in Calgary, Alberta. You can't buy a fourplex here for a million. Clint can't buy a house for a million. And Tom, you're buying a full-on fourplex for a quarter million. Well, it's a few things, right, Steve? So let's let's dive into how I look at that math, right? And the so these two places that we got the HELOC on, so they appraise somewhere in the neighborhood of 900000 right? So you're talking about, and I'm only renting those out for about 2700 so Tom's telling me I could take that 900, I could go to Toledo and I could buy four, let's just round it up. Let's just say five fourplexes and I'm renting those out 
for thirty two hundred each, so I'm getting fifteen thousand a year instead of instead of three, right? So let's figure out why I would do the townhouse in Vancouver versus the apartments in Toledo. And in, in Texas talked about this earlier when Tom was sharing. It's because we always have to remember when we're when we're buying real estate, we're buying three main things. We're buying the cash flow, we're buying the capital appreciation, and we're buying the principal pay down, right? So Tom and I both had like we'd be net net even on that principal pay down. So that's irrelevant whether I buy a million there or a million here. Principal pay down's the same. So we're good there. Cash flow, he's killing me, right? He's killing me in the early years. But one very interesting thing that Tom said was that person in that one building was paying 600 a month in rent for 16 years. Right, Tom? And you may have been being a little facetious, but I, I, I think what you're pointing out is is rents are pretty flat there. Like no, what you're she, paying. She, she literally told me I've been paying the same rent since I moved in here 16 years ago. It's been 600. It could probably be closer to 800 when I, when I was looking at it for that area. Yeah. Yeah. So, so Steve, like, just think about that for a second. He's saying $600 a month for 16 years on average over the last 22 years, rents here have moved 5% per year. Right. And then you go to capital appreciation. That property at $200,000 in 10 years will probably be about $200,000, right? Maybe 220. But in Vancouver, real estate has doubled in value every 10 years. And so if I, if I look at that $1 million townhouse instead of $1 million in Toledo, what I'm doing is saying, I don't need the cash flow. I don't need the extra 12 grand. Well, I mean, it's a lot of money. It's 10 grand a month, right? 12, 10 to 12 grand a month. That's 100 grand a year. It's a lot of money. But what I'm doing is saying, hey, if I put my 200 grand in, I've got my million dollars in real estate over the next 10 years, that's going to double in value. So on my 200 grand, I'm going to get a million in appreciation. And that's, that's what I want to focus on. And essentially, it's coming down to an IRR play. I'm saying, yeah. I think that the IRR model of high cash, like low cash flow, high capital appreciation over a 10 to 20 year period will exceed the high cash flow model. Because if we take our 10 years and now we go out another 10 years, my, two, my $1 million asset became a $2 million asset. When you look at the cash flow that the two of us switched over that 10 year period, he's way up but I'm closing the gap by year 10 because I'm going up 5% a year. He's staying flat. Now from year 10 to year 20, my $2 million asset becomes a $4 million asset and I'm still going up 5% a year on rent. So I'm doubling my rent every 15 years. And so you just look like the cash flow gap over a 20 year period shrinks, but the capital appreciation, if you're doubling every 10 years, your IRR will far exceed the property that cash, does pure cash flow. Can now, I make another point on it? Yeah, fire away. 
on the uh, capital appreciation in the United States, at least, you could also be tax-free because you could do a 1031 exchange, whereas the cash flow, you're paying income tax. Yeah, it's, it, it, I mean, I, I, I can't add that one in because I'm in, in Canada, so I don't get 1031. It's such a blasphemy. Uh, so you guys get that. Even another reason to do it. But Steve, it, it, it's the same way why, why you and I and other people on the call would look at why would I buy FANG stocks instead of, what, what do you call them in that tweet you did the other day? The ones that pay dividends for 50 years and they rise the, they raise oh, the, the rate. The, of, the uh, dividend kings. Dividend aristocrats, yeah. Yeah, uh, so, yeah, so why would we buy? Aristocrats at 25 and there's the kings at 50 years. Yeah, why would we buy yeah. the kings or the aristocrat? Why would we buy Fang stocks instead of kings or aristocrats? Because we're, we would prefer capital appreciation over cash flow. So that's your answer. Now I'm at the stage of life, and I'm at the stage where I think I have enough uh, capital appreciation appreciating assets. I need cash flow assets because I, no, I, I, I want. So absolutely. So I want to go to Ohio. Junk. Uh, 100% Clint because I did a tweet two days ago, three days ago about stocks that have gone to a million dollars over the last little while. And if you had put 9K in Tesla 10 years ago, just 9K, it'd be worth a million dollars today. But it, to get to a million dollars today with Walmart, which is like, you know, dividend aristocrat king, you would need half a million dollars 10 years ago in order to get that up to a million dollars today. So there, there is a period in your life when growth and cap cap appreciation matters so much more than cash flow and um, getting income off of your investments. And then, like I think, like you said, Clint, as you get later into life, you start to appreciate or value cash flow a lot more because you want to live off of it and stuff. And uh, having dividends and having cash flow is great, but most of the people in Twitter who are in their 20s and 30s, your primary concern should be capital appreciation. Get to five million, get to a million bucks, get to five million bucks as quick as you can. Um, although it's a little higher risk and stuff, but yeah, like that's where you're going to make your money. If you, if you take the example of the townhouse, right? Let's say on those two townhouses at a price of, we'll keep it simple, we'll just say, We'll just say 500,000, okay? Let's say I had to put 20% down on deposit for each of them when I bought them, right? So there was two of them, so we've got a million dollars and I had to put 20% down, so 200 grand, right? I, I actually had, you know, a given relationship with the developer. I had a bit of a better, better deal than that. I won't get into uh, how much better, but it's better. Um, and then you, you fast forward two years to closing and they're valued at 1.9 or 1.8 million. We said 900 each, right? So 1.8 million. That's 800 in lift on a $200,000 investment over a, over a three year period, right? So I, I personally, and I know, hey, timing, you can't, you, like, you're not always going to get lucky, that, 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 right? But I, I look at it and say, okay, I made an $800,000 return on a $200,000 investment 
over a period of three years. Like I just personally can't beat that. And I know everyone last year was telling me, Oh, Bitcoin, Bitcoin will beat it. Like you're a sucker. Well, fuck. Like I want to see those people come tell me that same thing right now. Right. I don't know where they are. Uh, <laughs> yeah. They, they all disappeared. <laughs> but... They all disappeared and they deleted their accounts. And, so... and I'm not even kidding. Look up the Bitcoin simps that were tweeting last year. Try and find their accounts. A lot of them have been deleted. I was looking up some of them because they were referencing them. I'm like, oh, wait, is she still around? Is he still around? They're gone. They delete. Hey, guys, we do. I do want to let Blind Luck talk. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> He's been hanging out for a <laughs> yeah, long time. Exactly, exactly, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, no, all good. I, I'm enjoying the conversation. Um, I just wanted to jump in. It's um, I, I really appreciate your guys' perspective. I used to buy businesses for a living um, through a corporation. So, like, a lot of your numbers focus conversation here is making a lot of sense to me um one of the things i kind of wanted to bring up especially since we have a lot of newer real estate investors on the call here is um the numbers need to make sense but then also what level of risk do you guys feel comfortable taking on before you kind of start feeling uneasy tom kind of talked on that a little bit with his 200 dollars a month cash flow per um house but the reason i ask if i was shopping the foreclosure market in 2011 and this was up in Seattle, Washington, and um, basically Boeing Aircraft, the largest employer in the area, um, laid off like, I don't know, 100,000 people. Like, it was ridiculous, right? So you had all these rentals where people were over-leveraged. You were talking 20 to 1 or more leverage. And, you know, as soon as their tenant didn't pay for two, three months, they went bankrupt. You know what I mean? And as we head into a recession, I think, you know, there's a little – I'm not going to say, like, that's going to happen in every market, but there is some – concerned that you might have tenants with job loss stuff like that and um cash flow could be a little bumpy right so heading into an uncertain market what level of risk are each of you guys comfortable with in your various markets i mean i can give you my perspective but the number one thing i focus on is markets with a lot of jobs if you have a market with jobs like dfw atlanta just i get really nervous hearing so many people buying Airbnbs in vacation towns because there's not a a job. And I'm not saying it's wrong or it's, I'm sure these people are doing really well. So I'm I'm never going to hate on someone's technique, but it's like, man, if that real estate, if the uh, Airbnb market dries up and there's not a job base, that would scare me. So that's just my perspective. Okay. But I think you need to know the job market as well too, that you're in. And I, I'm in Calgary, Alberta, which is basically like Texas North. Uh, we're a, just like another Houston, a lot of oil and gas. And right now we're doing fabulous. We're doing terrific because oil prices are doing so well. But that may not be the same in other places of the U.S. And so I think you really got to know your local economy and your local area. And I wanted to ask Clint that with the Vancouver area and the economy they have there. And then, Lauren, you're in a tourism town there with Tampa, right? Yeah, that's that's what I was going to say. So there, your question, Blind Luck, is almost a little bit like how much emergency fund should you have, kind of, right? Like, Yeah, I mean, you know that you're going to have some issues here and there. Life happens, right? So I, well, the concern I see is I see a lot of people doing like these STRs and um, vacation spots and stuff. And they're just running so close to the wire that as soon as anything goes wrong, they're going to go toes up, you know? So you got to have a little cushion. So I was just curious 
you know, like how much emergency fund do you guys kind of, you know, pencil in for that cushion? Yeah, yeah, makes a lot of sense. I'm doing, a, I'll just talk through kind of a few things that I'm doing. One, I was going to leave my job. I've chosen to get a different job, which I really actually like so far. It's my first week. It's been pretty good after my month off. Right. So I'm going to I'm going to work another maybe year, try to get through this next recession fully employed. My husband and I are both salaried plus commission and bonus and our salaries are both six figures. So and we're both pretty employable. So the, and we live off of about a sixth of what we make. So that right there, we have a the monthly cash flow is kind of wild with what we make just from our jobs. And that doesn't take into account the real estate that we have. Right. And then what I have done with the real estate is we have eight short term rentals and four long term rentals. Now, of those eight short term rentals, one's a camper and one is my primary. And I'm when it rents, I move into one of my other ones. Right. So I basically have six short term rentals and four long term rentals. So I'm actually pretty diversified. And of those, they're actually on the same properties as each other. So I feel like I can flip from short term to long term pretty quickly. And I, I probably would try to do a furnished rental first just so that I could keep the furniture and everything and then flip it back to short term rental if things turn around. We also could take a HELOC on our primary residence for, it was something that we've talked about doing. We're also just saving some more cash just from our jobs as well. So those are, that's kind of what like what we're doing in terms of like a per property emergency fund. We don't we don't really have it just because our monthly cash flows pretty good that makes sense and it doesn't have to be like a hard number just having options right i remember in 2011 i was touring a couple foreclosures and there was this one in particular it was a rental the per person who was trying to sell it was a bank to turn out selling it but it had been rental um what happened is the septic system went out on it and it was like a twenty thousand dollar issue for the property and we're talking maybe a two hundred fifty thousand dollar home at the time they couldn't cover it they went bankrupt and you know that's the type of stuff i think about that a lot of these newer investors should be considering like life happens. Right. So, um, I don't know, just, I, I see some people, you guys are good. You guys are solid. Your experience, you've been through the ups and downs, like you get it, but you know, it's just something I think about. I see a lot of these accounts kind of almost bragging about how much, you know, they're leveraged up. It's like, Holy shit. Do you guys realize the level of risk you're taking? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, no, I'm I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah, there. I mean, what? And I tweeted about this a little bit ago. Like, I think we're all, you know, I'm 32, so I was I was like the week of my 19th birthday is when Lehman failed, right? So like, literally, I've been around for basically bull market. I'm gonna ignore March 2020 for now, but there's a lot of people like me who are literally in their 30s, 10 years into their career. And have an experience what we're experiencing now. So that's why I tweeted earlier, like, we are finding out actually what your risk tolerance is as an investor. All those theoretical questions about how, how would you sleep at night if your portfolio lost 10, 20, 30, 40% of its value? That, that answer for a lot of investors has been purely theoretical until now. Go ahead, Clint. Yeah, I mean, if we take, you know, I was joking about Bitcoin, but you, you and Steve and Tom know that I have a very healthy, well, healthy might not be the right word anymore. Uh, I have a very large amount of our investments in Bitcoin. I, it's, I said to my wife when I put it in, hey, it's either going to go to zero, it's going to go to four or five million. It's somewhere in between. And I'm willing to risk that. Yeah, and, like a lotto ticket it, almost. Yeah, and it's still in there, blind luck, because 95% of my 
asset base is real estate. So I said, okay, well, if this 5% is our, you know, the U S version of a Roth or a, um, whatever the other one is, um, IRA, uh, it, it's our money in that, like our kids college tuition, <laughs> that's horrible to say, but <laughs> that's what was in there. But you, you know, and I, when I was on the Vancouver real estate podcast and talking to the guys on that podcast, you know, they asked the same question as you did because it can often seem when I'm sharing that you're talking high leverage and it makes people think that it's like Icarus and you're flying too close to the sun and the, your wings are going to get clipped and you're going to fall to the ground. But like when I look at my real estate portfolio, and maybe 60% loan to value. That's so pretty good. Yeah, and know, le- leverage actually, isn't always bad. Like in Lauren's situation, like if you have other means to cover, you know, the mortgage and stuff and, and event, a tenant, you know, loses a job and isn't paying you, like, you know, leverage can be a very powerful tool. But yeah, yeah, I mean, you got to make sure you have options. Well, I, I think the key is you have to be, like I tend to use the words, you have to be risk respectful. Right. In, in my day job, I'm a, a CFO for a real estate development company and in my job to make sure that the lights are always on. And I take that same approach in my life. So it's really just being respectful of the risk. And it's also recognizing that almost any person who has gotten extremely wealthy has employed a fair amount of leverage. And I know Warren Buffett says that's the one way you you lose is through leverage, but it's also the way the majority of people, including him, have been able to get rich. And so if you if you use leverage in a risk-respectful way, uh, then you ought to be in a good position. And then, like you said, you make sure you have emergency funds, you make sure you have your own cash flow. I do very well in my day job. Um, and so just... I, I, I've yet to really feel concerned about an issue on any one of my individual. I uh, think your comment about the short-term rentals and vacation markets was spot on. Um, and then I think, I don't know what Toledo looks like, Tom, but um, I would be a little concerned in any market where you have like a primary employer that dominates the market. Like, um, you know, like the old coal towns, for example, or, um, you know, well, look at Detroit, right? Like their primary business was autos. And then you know, when that isn't profitable anymore, that whole town suffers, right? So that would be my inkling to kind of look for properties and markets that have multiple employers and a little bit of a mix, right? Right. And Toledo does. It's It's got um, a rubber market. It's got Owens Corning. It's got Libby Glass. It's got Jeep. It's got a Chrysler part plant. So it's pretty mixed. It does have a declining um economy and population since the 1970s however there's still opportunities and it's still a you know it's almost a suburb of detroit um it's it's about 45 minutes outside of detroit um but i still see opportunities in it and um i that that's why i'm a mix in both because clint i have that appreciation that you're talking about in dallas and they have the cash flow in Ohio, and that's really how I've I've structured my my portfolio. Smart, yeah. I had a friend; he had four rentals in a um, town called Aberdeen, Washington. And the only employer in Aberdeen, Washington, is a paper mill, and it got shut down in two thousand nine, I think. 
Yeah, he he got wiped out. It's like just <laughs> full stop. There's no way to recover when the, the entire town loses their main employer, right? Well, like it's nice to hear your voice. I feel like we've been like interacting for like years. Yeah, that's why I jumped in. Yeah, I'm glad you did. A piece of advice that I don't think a lot of people consider when trying to underwrite their deals or calculating their return um, is property taxes. And I know uh, Tom probably sees this in Texas. If you model out what the property taxes are day one and then in Texas, people get sticker shock. Like your property taxes can double easy. And I don't think a lot of people realize that if they're first getting into real estate investing, you don't get a homestead exemption. I know a lot of this is very specific to the Texas market, but these are the kind of things you really got to think about when you're trying to underwrite your deal. No, I, yeah, no, that's I think good. that's a terrific point. Like I had a friend who, uh, we have a lot of snowbirds from where I'm at that go down to Phoenix um, for the winter months. And they were buying houses during... 2008, 2009, 2010 uh, for 160 whatever. And now they're worth $300,000. And they're saying, hey, like, things doubled in value. And then I've asked them a few other questions too. And they're spending 20000 bucks a year on HOA fees. Oh my God. So, like, you gotta, like, you gotta, like, pro- so, terrific point. Property tax, HOA fees, utilities. Those are all carrying costs that you need to do. You need to factor those in to say, hey, was the investment profitable? Sure, you got to enjoy the property and sure you got to go there every year and enjoy some some time off and some nice weather and stuff. But don't, yeah, property tax and HOA fees for sure. You got to factor those in. Your accountant wants to factor them in. Yeah, I look at like buying a business, right? Like, you know, it's got a cash flow, right? The appreciation is awesome and stuff, but. You got to treat it like a business. And the reason I asked this question is I feel like people get hung up on the numbers like, oh, you know, it pencils out, but they don't zoom out and look at the big picture. And I think that's what people should be thinking about heading into a little bit more of an uncertain market. Is when you zoom out, what could go wrong? Have that postmortem discussion, right? Um, is there one employer in town? Is a shrinking market? Is, uh, you know, all these things, right? They all play into it. Okay. Oh, go ahead, Clint. I was, oh, I was going to say, the one thing I was going to add was that in Florida is what's happening with insurance because of the hurricanes. Like our insurance has gone up like 40, 50%. I don't know how we could have seen that coming. Um, most of my deals have been purchased since this happened, but I could see a lot of people getting hammered on that. Um, That's a good one. Insurance, yeah. I'm trying to learn more about. Like, I don't feel like I fully understand how insurance is priced sometimes. And as I scale, I want to... I'm yeah, sure people that scale larger are able to really work with their insurance agents better. But yeah, it's a good one. Yeah, it takes time to to build your team. Go ahead, Clint. And then I I posted up in the nest um, a tweet that I had earlier in the day. I created a guide. Uh, well, what I did was I created a, a guide for analyzing short term rentals. Um, and it's super involved. And part of my criteria for analyzing a short-term rental is that it has to break even at least as a long-term rental. So it's really long. But then I just took what I did when I was making that and created a free like long-term rental guide. Um, so I did post that up in the nest. And I, I do want to walk through that here before we wrap up. But go ahead, Clint. Yeah, I think it, it, it's a little bit funny. And blind luck, you're, you're, you're going to maybe chuckle a little. But the 
the, you know, you just talked about what we're all doing for the recession because people got to buckle down like real estate, negative time. I think the interesting part with most of the people on this call is that's the time we're actually looking to buy our real estate, right? So I bought those four places in 2019. I did put something under contract a month or two ago because it, it, I thought it was a really good deal, good area, et cetera. I don't have to close for three years because it hasn't been built yet, whatever, right? But I have the HELOCs that we just signed today. I have another two properties where the same thing happened, but we hadn't got the HELOCs. We wanted to close on these ones first, so our debt numbers were okay. We're going to put two more HELOCs on those. And so we should have a lot of equity available as the recession comes. And my theory is, you know, the rates are going to keep going up. They've got to stop inflation. And so we'll see a, a maybe 10%, maybe 15% drop in real estate by the fall. And like blind luck, I want to buy four more properties. I'm all, right? I, yeah, I'm all on board. I bought my first property 2011 at the very bottom. You know, this is the best time to buy. But you got to be in a financial position to pull the trigger. Yeah, you have to be in the position to pull the trigger. And, and it's, it's like Lauren was saying, right? This is where we'll really see all those people who say, oh, when things get bad, that's when you got to buy, right? You got to buy when the blood's running in the street. We're going to see if they actually back up what they've been tweeting for the last 12 years of a bull run. It's easy to talk about buying when it's bad and, you know, like, oh yeah, I can, we'll weather the storm, but we'll see if people when the stock market's depressed, when Bitcoin's depressed, when real estate's depressed, are people going to go big? Because you can be on the right side of the bus looking at the dark window or the other side of the bus looking out at the sunshine. And both sides, yes, I'm posting this tweet, this meme on Monday, Steve, so don't steal it. Uh, you all know that. You, know, you all know that bus. Oh, I know what you mean. Both people are saying, yeah, exactly. They're both saying, yeah. The stock market is down 20%. Real estate's down 30%. Like, which view are you taking? And I think, so what are all of us on the panel doing? We're all getting ourselves in permit in position, I think, to really take advantage of the, of the downside that we expect may come. Because I think you're right. I think, I think there is going to be a downside. I'm going to make sure the cash is there, that our jobs are okay, that, you know, our family's taken care of and emergency ready first. And then whatever's available above that, I want to deploy pretty heavily. You got it, man. That's my plan is to stack as much cash as I can right now with passive income strategies. Eclipse my active income. And then I want to retire into the next bull market. I don't want to retire at 60, 65 or 55 or whatever, some time frame predetermined by a target date fund or some goal that I've set in my mind. No, I want to eclipse my active income with passive income and then I want to retire into a bull market so the bull market can carry it through and continue to monetize those assets. So that's what I'm doing right now. I'm trying to stack as much cash as I can. I actually did start deploying some of it today. I bought some stock in TQQQ, which is the triple leverage TQQ uh, ETF, which it's high risk, so don't take that as financial advice. Don't do it, but that's what I'm trying to do to start layering in a position into that so that when we start to get going again, 
I got my uh, my base formed into that. So, but that's exactly what Clint's saying. He's getting HELOCs so that he can buy real estate. I'm stacking cash so I can buy stocks and ETFs that I will be bullish on when the time is right. I just secured a guidance line of credit this week, so I'm ready and waiting for the right Texas deals. How are you playing it, Blind? Like, what are what are some of the moves that you're making? I'm all in on stocks right now. I've basically deployed all capital into stocks. Um, you know, things are trading at a discount right now. I, I don't know if it's going to be one years or ten years, but eventually it'll come back around. I'm still relatively young, so you know, I'm all in right now. And what uh, what stocks are you into? Almost entirely index funds. I'm not trying to pick anything. Okay. I'm betting the market will recover eventually, and I'll ride that average. And when you say like index funds, is that SPY or VTI? Uh, what do you? VTI primarily. Um, I do yeah. have S, S, uh, SPY as well. I am looking if like a UPRO, which is a triple leverage on um, SP500. I am looking mm-hmm. at getting into that even. I mean, at some point it has to recover, right? So um, I, yeah, I, do, I, do, I, I do like those triple leverage funds because you can't lose more than you put in, right? Um, yeah, unlike... DM me after the spaces here. I'll send you a really interesting article uh, from Seeking Alpha, and they showed how you can absolutely kill the market by using the triple leverage funds. But there's a couple of key indicators that you need to watch for to make to safeguard yourself on it. So yeah. DM me, and I'll send that to you. Um, it beats it by like ten percent. So you you pay for it a lot with beta, like you it's volatile as heck. So you pay like three times more volatility, but you get twice the returns. But if you do it based on it's the two hundred day moving average. So if you just make sure you're below the two hundred day moving average, you'll do fine. Right now you're below it, so don't don't get into it just yet. Um, anyways, I'll send you the full article. DM me so I don't forget though. Yeah, yeah, I'd love to uh, read up on that. But yeah, the triple yeah. leverage stuff's pretty interesting at these prices. Um, I mean, if all 500 companies of you know S and P 500 go to zero, I think we got some other problems, and we're not going to be too worried about our portfolios. So um, that's where I'm at. And then um, no, I, I hear you, man. I get I get it every day too because I'm I'm really long on QQQ, uh, and I'll get a couple of DMs or tweets each day saying, "What if it goes to zero? I'm like, if it goes to zero, like. You know what happened there, right? Like that means Amazon, Apple, Costco, Microsoft, Cisco. Like they all went to zero. Yeah, which I mean, and, if that happens, tandem, I mean that's a whole other game. Yeah, like we're 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 worried more about getting bullets and hatchets so that we can go attack zombies and defend ourselves and aim for the head. Like that's what we're worried about. Not that our stock that we bought ten years ago or five years ago went to zero. We're worried about. Saving our families, yeah. Exactly. So, yeah, so I'm, not, good, I'm not smart enough to pick these stocks. I mean, you don't know what's happening in the boardrooms and behind the scenes and stuff. Did someone say Lauren had her hand up a while ago? I think I feel like yeah, yeah. I want to I want to bring it back to Lauren, and we're going to talk uh, STRs, LTRs. We definitely strayed. Uh, our goal tonight was analyzing real estate deals. Yeah, sorry about that. That was that's on me. Uh, oh, no worries. No, uh, that's on me. It's my fault. I'm my fault. <laughs> I'm, let, I'm the rogue uh, one in the room. Yeah, let's get Lauren. Uh, Lauren, uh, over to you for STRs and LTRs. Let's rock and roll. What is Lauren? What is an STR? 
what is an LTR? Why don't you start with the basics? Yeah, so long-term rentals are going to be anything that has at least a month-to-month lease on it. Basically, usually they have annual leases. So that's kind of your typical rental property when we're talking about it. Um, The short-term rentals are how I think of them. They're going to be vacation rentals, right? Anything less than 30 days, renting three or more times a year, I think, is the technical definition. But when I'm thinking of them, I'm thinking of your your typical Airbnbs, VRBOs, things like that. So um, as I mentioned earlier, I know a few of you have downloaded it since we've been sitting here, but I created this how to analyze an LTR like e-guide. It's free. Um, and I, I put the tweet up in the nest and it just covers some of the numbers that I look at when I'm analyzing a deal. And lately I've been analyzing properties as short-term rentals, but my first step is to always make sure they at least break even as a long-term rental. So this is still really relevant for that. My short-term rental analyzing guide does have a price on it because I worked super hard on it and there's years of my life that went into all that knowledge. So, but the long-term rental one is free. It opens up with kind of helping you think through what you want to do with a property and some of the numbers, but you don't really need to download it for what we're talking about tonight. I just wanted you guys to know that it's there. Um, And of course, like when you're analyzing a rental property, the first thing you want to do is know what your market rent is going to be. And I've always used like rentometer for that. And then I'll take rentometers numbers. That's like rentometer or rentometer. I don't know how you pronounce it, but Dot com And I'll take those numbers and I'll kind of verify on Zillow, do like a kind of a search for the property I'm looking at, like a similar one and just just kind of gut check the numbers that way. Tom, how do you estimate the rental numbers when you're running your numbers? I go, um, I shared this earlier, I go off long term numbers. And I always go on the long or the lower side of rents uh, as a precaution when I'm looking at a deal. So I know minimum I'm going to get six hundred or seven hundred dollars a month for this store. Um, and then if I do rent it at seven or eight hundred, um, that's just a bonus on my numbers. Okay, cool. Yeah, definitely being being conservative is good. When I'm running rentometer, they have um, 25th percentile, 50th percentile, 75th percentile, I'm like the best, most expensive. I usually go with like the 50 percentile mark. That's also because when I'm analyzing stuff, it's mostly in Florida. So kind of middle of the road is in some ways conservative the way the way rents have gone, but kind of pick whatever. When you're doing that, you should pick kind of whatever you are comfortable with in terms of the percentile. If you want to do 25th percentile, that would be conservative, I think. Um The next thing to do once you know, obviously, like what your rental numbers are going to be is then you need to estimate your operating expenses. And so your operating expenses do not include your mortgage, but that's going to include like your property management. We've talked about this a little bit earlier in the space, your property management, your property taxes, insurance, repairs, if you're covering any utilities, lawn care, pest control, kind of all of those things. And I also include CapEx reserves in my operating expenses. I've seen this calculated a couple of different ways where you can keep your CapEx reserves out of your operating expenses. I've chose to put it, chosen to put it there. Um, so that's in, in the, the, I use 5% for repairs and maintenance, 5% of monthly rent or annual rent and 5% for CapEx reserves as well. 10% for property management. And I do usually 5% for vacancy. So um, any comments there, Clint, Stephen, Tom, about how, how you estimate rent revenue or what your operating expenses are? 
No, that makes sense. I mean, how have, uh, what I'm, what I'm always interested in, cause it's like, I tend to take a pretty back of the napkin approach when, when, when I do things and, and then later put them into an Excel spreadsheet and get pretty close. And it sounds like you're a pretty rules of thumb based person too, Lauren with like five, five, 10. Right. And so what I'm wondering is now that you've been doing it for a few years, how do your actual results stack up against the estimates that you do going into these properties? Oh, they're going to be, they're going to be really close. I mean, with the exception of maybe CapEx, right. I'm just taking the CapEx as like a rule of thumb to put in as, you know, like a placeholder going forward the first year or two, there's going to be, you should probably pretty much know what your CapEx stuff is going to be. But like, for example, the duplex I bought in June of last year, I know that it needs a dock, it needs a roof, it needs three AC units, and it's going to need two water heaters. That 5% that my spreadsheet sets aside for CapEx reserves is not enough to cover all of those things going forward, right? But um, other than like CapEx, that stuff's going to be pretty much dead on. And and that's a really good point, Clint. Some of these things, when you're kind of initially running numbers, it's like maybe you're going to run numbers with the idea that do you want to make an offer or not? It's kind of this like binary thing. Once you get under contract and do the inspection and stuff, I really do believe in kind of fine-tuning your numbers at that point, right? Maybe you can run your tax calculator. Like my county has a tax calculator website. You can run your tax calculator beforehand, but you may need to wait until you have your inspection until you have um the we have the we've talked about this before we have a certain point called a four point report a report called a four point that we have to send to our insurance agent so sometimes we have to go after the inspection period to get the true insurance quote and things like that um you could you know ask the previous owner what utilities they paid for and how much that was and things like that but definitely i like rules of thumb in terms of making offers and then at least here in florida you're not out anything during the inspection period pretty much every seller will they basically have to let you out of the contract so then you kind of refine numbers as you go all right so the next step once you have your revenue and then you take away some allowance for vacancy and then you subtract those operating expenses like we talked about so again that's property management property taxes insurance maintenance utilities and all of that then you get your net operating income right and again it's, this was really weird for me i remember when i first started analyzing rental properties it's like how is my net operating income like something that says net income in it how does it not include the mortgage but it doesn't that's something that we're going to take into account later and the noi the net operating income this is the number that people are using when they're calculating cap rate and this was confusing to me at first too people are like oh it's a five cap property it's a 10 cap property it's a 12 cap property right this was a long time ago so what do people mean I, when they're talking about cap, cap rates? <laughs> you what? I You've never even seen it. Cap. I want a twelve <laughs> cap. That sounds amazing. I know those existed one day, um, but like here in in my in my current area, I looked this up. Like so, I'm I was born in St. Pete, Florida. Right now, like four to five percent, you might be able to get from a cap rate. San Francisco, it's like two percent. Um, if you read any of like Brandon Turner, the bigger pockets, old books, eight to 12 is what they were looking for. But what they're talking about when they're talking about a cap rate is you take the NOI and you divide it by the market value, which for the most part is going to be the price. So that's one number that when you are looking at properties, you should have something in mind 
that you're looking for. And it has to be realistic, right? You, if you want like, and this is a little bit like what we were talking about. You may want something that's a huge cash flow property and a huge appreciation property. And those may not exist in the markets that you're in, right? And you may want a 10 cap, right? You may want a 12 cap like like Clint, but it may not exist. So to some extent, you've got to have kind of a hurdle rate that you're looking for for cap rate. Um, and anyways, that's how it's that's how it's calculated. In a lot of cases, that's as far as you're going to get because you're going to run these numbers and the cap rate's going to be like 1% and then you don't need to, to do anything else. But once you kind of hit the hurdle rate you want for a cap rate, then is when you the, that's when you bring your mortgage back into it if you're going to have one, right? And then that's where you are going to remove the mortgage payments and your PMI, you know, anything like that, your interest and your taxes, um, not your interest, your insurance and taxes were already taken care of in the operating expenses portion. So here it's just going to be your principal and interest and, and any PMI that you might have. And then once you subtract that from your net operating income, that's when you're going to get your cash flow. And that's the number that Tom was talking about earlier, where he's looking for over $200. I think you said per property, Tom, not per door, right? Over 200 per property? It was per door. Okay, per door. Okay, so over $200 per door. Um, that is something that you are going to have in your mind. What are you comfortable with? What do you want to collect per door? Um, sometimes with like bigger apartment buildings, you can get to like 100 or 150 um, because you have generally when there's more units, not a bunch is going to go wrong at once, but kind of like the fewer the units, the higher to me, you want that per door cash flow to be. Um, once you calculate your cash flow, that's when you can get your cash on cash return. And that's something that's really important to investors. And this is where leverage really helps you. So we've talked about, you know, what's your debt? You know, is it fixed? How long is it? How, things like that. But the idea of leverage is you can put less cash into the property. And so naturally, if you finance a deal, you're going to have a higher probably cash on cash return than you would if you didn't right? It depends how the numbers shake out. But um, the cash on cash return is just your annual cash flow divided by your cash invested. And your cash invested is going to be your down payment, um, you know, your closing costs, any kind of upfront repairs. And I think sometimes you can also, if you want to do it this way, you can include your like upfront reserves in that too, if you want to be kind of conservative. Um, another number that I'm seeing more and more, and this is something where maybe maybe if you're doing what Tom's doing, where you had to get the the commercial loan or things like that, you calculate your debt service coverage ratio, and that's just you know your net operating income divided by you know how much do you have to pay to service your debt every year. So that's like the nitty gritty of analyzing rental property and the numbers that I do. I haven't taken, I did not in this guide and I don't always do it. And Clint, maybe you're going to kill me, but I don't always calculate IRR because there's a lot of assumption in there about growth of rents, growth and appreciation. Um, what, and also particularly when you are going to sell, that makes IRR kind of hard for me to, to calculate. Go ahead, Clint. Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting one. And, and for those who, who wonder, I mean, I'll, I'll digress a little on IRR because that's the main metric that I, I use, Lauren. I do everything you do. And the only difference is I, I roll it out for a decade and then I assume uh, a certain percentage lift in the revenues. 
And I do it conservative relative to historic. So like I said earlier, Vancouver's averaged about 5%, 5.5% rent appreciation a year for the last 22 years. And, and I probably build in around 25 to 3% rent inflation. And then just assume a terminal value in year 10. So for those who don't know what a terminal value is, you just say, oh, if, if the cap rate is the same, Lauren was talking about cap rates, if it's the same 10 years from now as it is today, what will that NOI drive in market value? And I assume that you sell it in your 10 one. And uh, the reason I do that is because assets don't cash flow here. So if I, if I didn't do capital appreciation and I didn't assume a terminal value and a sale in year 10, you would never buy real estate. But what I was going to ask you, so you do cash on cash. Do you also do cash on cash, including principal pay down? And can you share with the listeners what the difference is between that and just pure cash on cash and why you might look at both of them? Yeah, I haven't done a lot with principal pay down. I do what what I sometimes will run separately is I, I kind of call it like my it's not the right way, but what's the impact on my net worth? Right. And that's kind of like that. So separately, since I'm not really doing IRR because of all the assumptions that go into it. I separately look at what the appreciation will be and the loan pay down will be. And I think of that as kind of like the impact on my net worth. And right now with, with even conservative assumptions, it's like a hundred thousand dollars a year or something for, for kind of us personally. And we look at it on a portfolio basis rather than like a, a um, property by property basis. But I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on that, Clint, Mr. Since you're the CFO. <laughs> yeah, sure. The, so I do a very similar process to Lauren. So what she just roadmapped for all of us was almost exactly what I do. The, the only difference is here because I'm in a, I'm in a place like Lauren talked about where we have very low cap rates. And, and to give you another analogy of what a cap rate is, it basically turns real estate into a bond. So when you think about bond investors, they have a face value and they're looking at what their coupon is on that face value. So how much interest am I going to get per year? And what real estate investors do is they flip that on their head. They say, oh, well, it pays me this much cash per year. And so I'm going to divide that by a number to determine how much I'm willing to pay for it. Because then if you flipped the equation, you'd say based on that market value, your bond is paying you if it's a cap rate of 5% your real estate bond is paying you 5%. Here in Vancouver, they're paying about 3 3.5% Lauren. So when you look at the cash flow, we're underwater, right? Most of my properties don't cash flow in my models for the first five years. Now, again, I don't build in the aggressive rental rates and rents are probably up 30% the last two to three years. So by the time I close on them, they've outperformed what I modeled because I model at a point in time, right? But so in that model, the cash flow is negative. And so you're looking at it and saying, well, why would you buy it? And so for our listeners, there's three things we talked about, all of us always focusing on. Our cash flow, our capital appreciation, and our principal pay down. Now, if your asset's cash flowing and you're comfortable from that perspective, you may ignore principal pay down and capital appreciation. But if you're in a high cost of living and high capital cost real estate city, those two things are going to be very important. And that's where two things come into play. One is 
cash on cash with principal pay down. So that's the same formula Lauren was talking about. You're taking your total cash flow that's in your hands at the end of the year, and you're saying, what is that divided by the amount of cash or equity that I put into this property? The only difference is your cash that you're using as, you, as the money you get in your jeans, you're adding back to it the amount of principal that was repaid during the year. So you're saying, well, that was a reduction in that. That was an increase in my net worth. So I'm going to count it as an inflow. And so your, your, uh, numerator in that situation is higher by your principal pay down and your denominator stays the same. So that's the first thing I look at Lauren is, is I ignore the cash on cash because it's negative, but I look at the cash on cash, including principal pay down. And I say, Oh, like that's a decently healthy number. And then the next thing is Lauren talked about IRR and your IRR is the uh, rate of return that brings your present value to zero. So it's, it, it's, it's your total return that if you compounded would bring your print, your net present value to zero. So it allows comparability across uh, investment types. And so I look forward 10 years, inflate my rents, inflate my expenses, assume that I dispose of the asset after 10 years and say, what was my rate of return over that decade? And I target going on any investment that has an IRR above that 13 to 15% range line. Because if I, if I can exceed 12, then I'm doubling every six years, right? If I can get to 16 to 18, you're doubling every four years. And so I want to get to about a, about a 15 plus percent IRR on the investments that I make in real estate. Yeah, that's awesome. And I have run, I have run IRR. I've tried to like sell my parents on some deals and I'll run IRR for them. But I was going to say too, like part of the re and Clint, I'm glad that you were talking earlier about what your plan is. Cause I know you don't cash flow now, but I never really thought about how much more your rents are going to increase in Vancouver versus your payments are going to like not increase by as much. So it didn't really cross my mind how much you will, you really will be cash flowing eventually, because I've been wondering like, in like I'm trying, I'm trying to do cash flow, right? Which is why I have so many short-term rentals. Like you can get like a thirty percent, forty percent cash on cash return with short-term rentals, right? So um, that's kind of how I've handled it. But I didn't really think about about your situation. Go ahead. Yeah, like Lauren, on the properties that I purchased in 2019, when I underwrote those, I wrote them at a revenue of 2100, right? Uh, they're now renting for 27 to 2800. So let's say 2750. And that is a increase of 31%. So the rents are up 31% from when I underwrote them in 2019 to today when I'm renting them out in 22, 2022. So we're up through COVID 10% a year. And so, you know, it's not going to keep at that rate, but let's assume it keeps at 5% a year for the next 10 years before I dispose of them. And keep in mind, I'll never dispose of them. That would get you to 
uh, another 50%, like you're looking at your, and then you compound, I mean, you're renting those out for 4,000 a month, 10 years from now. Right. So it's, it's just pretty ludicrous. The, by the time the mortgage is paid off, let's say 20 years from now, you're talking five, six grand a month in rental revenue. Yeah, I love that. We've been talking about that too. Our the our one duplex we think of as like a savings account for our apartment building where we have even right now about $300,000 of equity in it because it's gone to up 200 grand in the last year, which is just insane. Although we did get a good deal on it, but you know, on our our loan on our 6 units only 400. So we think about we could easily double that cash flow. And then if we'd converted our other our three LTRs there into STRs, I mean, it would just be incredible, but we're holding on to everything for now because our, our debt is like 3%. Um, all right, so we are like way over today. Thanks, guys, for hanging out with us pretty much every Wednesday at 9 p.m. Eastern. Myself, Lauren Adulting is Easy, Clint Murphy, Stephen Wealthy, and Tom the Frugal Gay are here. Sometimes we have guests, sometimes we have speakers. Special thanks to Blind Luck and Texas Tech for joining us tonight. Thanks, guys. We talked about how to analyze rental properties. Tons of gems in this one. I think my favorite one from Tom was um, about get, uh, getting a relationship going with credit unions to help with your financing, right? And that guidance line of credit that you're doing. Clint, you dropped a ton of gems. Love how you analyze properties. Even just now, how you just talked to IRR was great. But comparing and contrasting the difference, the particular difference between investing a million dollars in Toledo versus a million dollars in Vancouver. Very, very interesting there. Um, Steven, love, always love your, love your inputs. And um, I liked, I, I liked how you were talking about using passive income, right? To try to get that higher than your active income, investing all of that and kind of working through the next recession, getting all that kind of foundation laid and, and retiring after that. Um, so overall and blind luck, thank you so much again for joining us. Thanks for joining us, everybody. Again, this has been recorded. It will be posted on the Adulting is Easy podcast feed in a couple of days if you had to come late or come on, on and off. Um, so thanks for joining us, everybody, and we'll, we'll see you soon. Yeah, Lauren, one thing I want to throw out at people, because we're here every week, and for those who drop in regularly, we see a lot of you. We appreciate it. If there are specific topics that you want the four of us to talk about, let us know. DM us. Say, hey. Can you guys have a, a week where you talk about wealth mindset? Can you have a week where you talk about this aspect of real estate? Let us know what you want to hear from us and what you think will resonate with a broader audience because we have a pretty diverse skill set up here, whether it's talking about how to make more money at your job, whatever it is, just send us DMs and tell us what you want us to bring up and what you want us to talk about. Our goal is all of us want to make more money. All of us want to grow our wealth. And we want more people to become wealthy. So we want more people that are in the audience listening to become wealthy. So send us what you want us to talk about. And Lauren, great breakdown, STRs, LTRs, and providing everyone with your guides. Super appreciate that and what you uh, do for us every single week. Thank you, everyone, for joining us. Back to you.